Okay, so Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus begun to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Well, thank you very much, Daisy. Um, regulars at Morns probably know that I don't often uh, use sporting illustrations, but uh, seeing as we're in ashes uh, season, here is the flag of the Australian cricket team. Uh, there's actually lots of symbolism going on here, which I've been interested to learn during the week, and I could spend time sort of exegeting the flag before uh, we look at the passage, but I just want to draw your attention to the animals on either side of the flag. Of course, none of us are surprised to see the shield framed by an emu and a kangaroo. And uh, we might assume that these have been chosen just as typical representatives of Australian native wildlife. Uh, But there's more to it than that. So here is the most interesting thing about cricket that you were ever going to learn from me. The emu and kangaroo are not there as mere symbols of Australian native animals. They are there because they are the only Australian animals that cannot go backwards. They are physiologically incapable of going backwards. And apparently, I was told during the week by a former Australian cricketing great, they were deliberately chosen for that symbolic purpose. Now, I mention that because however well the Australian cricket team are doing right now doesn't really matter to us, but I mention that Because it can feel, can't it, that the cause of the gospel is going backwards in our time. It can feel that the kingdom of God, the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, is going backwards in our nation. Let me suggest a number of things that might lead us to that conclusion. For example, there are those devastating statistics that point to a catastrophic decline in Christian belief and church attendance over the last 60 or so years. And of course, the secular media might love these statistics a little too much, but it is hard to escape the reality of the numbers. Uh, In this book, The Death of Christian Britain, for example, understanding secularism in 1800 to 2000, uh, social historian Callum Brown demonstrates this massive sudden shift towards secularization during the 1960s. Have a look at this chart. For hundreds of years, the vast majority of British people went to church, lived with a vaguely Christian worldview, and would have identified themselves as Christians. But Callum Brown says that some point in the 1960s, church attendance simply fell off a cliff, and it keeps on falling. It's not only church attendance, but belief too. Uh, This year, you may have uh, read in the news that the national census showed for the first time that more than 50% of those in their 20s 
say they have no religious belief at all compared to 37% just a decade ago. That's an unprecedented shift in a very short space of time. In a recent survey called Talking About Jesus, the Evangelical Alliance measured the percentage of what it calls practicing Christians, and it defines practicing Christians as somebody who reads the Bible, prays, and goes to any kind of church at least once a month at 6%. But what about evangelical Christians, people like us, people who take the Bible as the word of God, as we've already thought about? The sort that loosely makes up a church like ours is estimated to be about 1.5% of the population, and that's quite a generous estimate. But that figure is skewed or lifted by migration from African countries and by London. And in reality, in the northwest of England, evangelical Christians barely form a single percentage. Now, we kind of know this instinctively, don't we? Because if you're in a school or a classroom or a workplace, chances are you're the only Christian there. So statistics. And then there are societal changes that are deeply confronting to the Christian. I don't need to spend long on this. It's been rehearsed in different places. But we know, don't we, that as we determine to hold to a biblical framework of morality on things like abortion, sexual ethics and the differences between men and women, and we refuse to bow to the latest identity fads in our society, we are finding ourselves more and more at the margins of society. We have less influence, less of a voice. We are regarded with more suspicion by colleagues and neighbours and even viewed as dangerous to society. If you were here last week, we had a brilliant illustration of the gulf between our society and the Bible. As Joe was preaching at the end of Malachi on the certainty of God's judgment upon the proud, you may remember that he did so to the backdrop of the Lancaster Pride Samba Band that was walking past, a perfect illustration of what we're talking about. And again, we know this instinctively in our own attempts to share the gospel. Fifty years ago, for the handful of those of us here who can remember that, well, I certainly can't, but 50 years ago, the basic question the inquirer needed to answer was, is it true? 25 years ago, the question became, is it true for me? Now, the question is, is it good? And then thirdly, there is the apparent slowness of the work, the slowness of the work. Uh, Some in this room, and I won't ask for a show of hands, are old enough to remember uh, things like this. A phone that dialed by putting your finger in a little circle. Some people remember that. Uh, Starting a car with a manual choke. Some people remember those frosty mornings. Simon remembers the manual choke. Um, Some people remember the the glory days of, of two postal deliveries a day when you would wake up on your birthday and the post would already be there and then there'd be another one coming later. Or some people remember going to town on a Saturday morning to the HMV record shop with your hard-earned paper round money, buying an LP and walking at home. And the, the, the thing, the, my favorite thing from the early 80s, that little blue packet of salt you used to get in the crisps. What happened to those? Some kind of health and safety thing, no doubt. Now, if you can remember all of those things, if you can remember none of them, then ask someone later and they can wax lyrical on the glory days of the 1980s. But if you can remember those things, you can also remember a time when sharing the gospel was just a little bit more straightforward. Biblical literacy was much higher. People knew some facts about Jesus and the Bible, so the starting point was agreed. Uh, Don Carson, the Canadian uh, Christian author, has said that talking to an atheist 40 years ago, uh, you were talking to what he calls a Christian atheist, meaning that the God in which the atheist did not believe was the Christian God. And so the categories for discussion were on our turf. But this can no longer be assumed. We're starting much, much further back. I regularly sit down and share the gospel with a man who's 10 years older than me on my street. And as we're chatting, it always amazes me how little he knows about the Bible. Just the basics, the Old and New Testament, the Jewish scriptures, Moses, Jesus, just not there. 40 or 50 years ago, a church could pull on an event, invite a speaker, and we could pack it out with guests. 
And now we're thrilled if we get half a dozen inquiries. And most churches struggle to get anyone new to come through the door. And so sharing the gospel just takes more time. Apparently, on average, it takes two years from someone first making meaningful contact with a Christian to becoming a Christian. That is very different to those stories you hear in the 1950s where Billy Graham would pack out stadiums and thousands of people would go forward and pray a prayer. And apparently, people need to hear the gospel eight times before it makes sense in our culture. And so bring these things together, the sheer statistics, the sheer unescapable numbers of church decline, the rapid and quite threatening ways that our society is changing, and the slowness of the work. And it can feel, can't it, as if the cause of Christ is going backwards. The church does appear to be shrinking. The ground is hard. The community is resistant the cause of Christ does seem to be failing in our time. And I think this leads us to two alternative responses, neither of which are good. On the one hand, because the plan that we've been given, this plan that we've already thought about a couple of times this morning to preach the gospel to the nations, it, it doesn't seem to be working or it seems to be too hard or too slow, we get diverted to another plan. And you can see this all over the country, in churches up and down the UK, established denominations especially, are reacting to the apparent failure of the mission by changing the mission, doing something more impressive, more welcome in the community. Instead of bringing the message of eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, many, many churches are now getting involved in fixing the world's needs. I was listening to a pastor friend, a guy I was at college with, speaking recently about his concern that we are losing focus on what he called the spiritual health that is Jesus' primary concern, the concern you see in the Gospels. He said, we've been through a pandemic in which health has been the topic on everybody's minds. We've heard loads about physical health, all sorts about mental health, People are talking about relational health, sexual health, financial health, planetary health. And of course, like everybody else, Christians are concerned about these things. But he points out that all of these are issues for now, whereas only spiritual health is a matter for eternity. And only the gospel brings that health. Only the gospel addresses eternal salvation. And so as we see the needs, the more obvious confronting needs of the world, and we try to fix those needs, and we lose clarity about the mission of Jesus, we drift into new directions that sound good and might win us applause from the world, but we're never God's purpose for his church. We get diverted. The second reaction is even worse. We simply feel defeated because the work is slow and even oppose, we lose confidence in ourselves and in the message. We compare ourselves to former times. We look back over the fence and say, wouldn't it have been great to be in the 1950s or 60s in those Billy Graham crusades? And we conclude that we are just unlucky to live in these times, that the mission is impossible. The ground is too hard. We'll never see this building filled. We'll never see many people become Christians. We just circle the wagons and pray for revival. And so all of that is to simply shape the question a little bit more clearly this morning. Is the cause of Christ going backwards? Is it capable of going backwards? Are there times when it does go backwards and we just have to grit our teeth and hold on? Are we in a time of decline? Is the mission of Jesus failing on our watch? Well, I'm not going to give you a simplistic answer. And I'm not going to send us on a guilt trip either. And I'm not going to give us a silver bullet. Uh, what I'm going to do, though, is turn us to the book of Acts and chapter 1. And we're going to see the answer to the question comes by understanding the times that we're in. 
And you'll see on the sheet that we're going to do that under three headings. The beginning of the last days, the purpose of the last days, and the shortness of the last days. So if you've got Acts chapter 1 open, look with me at verses 1 and 2. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. There's a a lot in those two verses, but I wonder if you can just have a look at them again and identify what is the most important word. I think the most important word in that whole sentence is the word began. Because the contrast between Luke's former book, the Gospel of Luke, and his sequel, the book of Acts, is not Jesus and then the church, or Jesus and a few heroic disciples, or Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The contrast is between the two successive stages of Jesus' ministry. And this is crucial for understanding what is going on in the book of Acts and in our world. It tells us that Jesus is active in our world right now. He began his work and teaching when he came to earth. That's recounted in the Gospels. But we must not think that when he ascended to heaven, he kind of retired to go and take up a hobby or something like that. Now Luke is making it clear that his work and his teaching continue. And just think about how that should change the way we see the world. However things appear, Jesus is in fact the hero of our world still. He is working flat out to fulfill the mission. It might sometimes feel like the world is running away and doing its own thing, but these verses tell us Jesus is in the driving seat and he's taking us exactly where he wants it to go. And I think that is an encouraging thought right at the beginning, isn't it? But if Jesus is in the driving seat, then what is it he's doing? Where is he taking the world? Well, the answer comes in verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now just uh, think about those 40 days and Jesus teaching his disciples the final bit of teaching that he gives them, clarifying everything he's taught them in his three years of earthly ministry. It's a crash course on discipleship. And it must have been a tremendous time of learning for them. I imagine there'd be all sorts of penny-dropping moments as bits and pieces that he taught them in the Gospels made sense. And occasionally in the Gospels you read, don't you, that they didn't understand it at that point, but then after his resurrection they understood it. Well, this is the moment where everything is coming together, where the dots are being joined up. But look carefully at how Luke sums up all of that teaching through all of those 40 days. What do you get when you join the dots of Jesus' teaching together? It says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Just think about that. Why use that phrase to sum up everything that Jesus has taught? Why not say, and he spoke to them about the love of God? Or he spoke to them about heaven and hell? Or he spoke to them about the righteous life? Or he spoke to them about forgiveness? After all, he had taught them about all of those things and more. And yet the phrase, the kingdom of God, is the phrase that captures it all. Well, let me suggest it's because the kingdom of God is the phrase that captures the great hope and expectation of the whole Bible. Just uh, leave a finger or a note sheet or something in Acts chapter 1 and turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 32. You don't have to turn if you don't want to. You can listen. Uh, page numbers are on the screen. Isaiah 32. This is just one example of the kind of hope and expectation that the Old Testament gives. This is written 700 years or so before Jesus. We'll just read the first few verses and then we'll jump down to verse 14. See, a king will reign in righteousness. And rulers will rule with justice. 
Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm. Like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed. And the ears of those who hear will listen. Down to verse 14. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pastor for flocks. Till a spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the desert becomes like a fertile field, and a fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens a forest and the city is level completely, how blessed will you be, sowing your seed by every stream, letting your cattle and donkeys range free? Now, there has been a heap of debate over the years about what the kingdom of God is and how it comes. Some see the kingdom of God as a, a present reality. It's basically our individual relationship with God. Others see the kingdom of God as purely future. It's really heaven. It's something we enter into when we die. And many Christians today believe the kingdom of God is something that we are creating on earth as we work to improve the world and reform society. As we bring God's moral order to the world, as we relieve the problems of poverty and sickness and social inequalities, we are bringing the kingdom of God to earth. But I want to suggest that none of those are what the Bible teaches. It seems to me from Isaiah 32 and many, many other passages in the Old Testament that the kingdom of God is essentially very, very simple with one complication, which we'll come to. It's simple with one complication. The kingdom of God is simply a way of talking about God's rule over this world. It's a way of describing a situation in which God rules as king perfectly, uncontested, unchallenged by evil, forever over all things. This is what Isaiah is talking about here. It's what all the Old Testament prophets looked forward to when they looked into the future and they saw the last days coming. And they put it in terms of Israel being restored. Israel, the ruined nation, here flattened by hail like a desert, and they looked to the future, and they saw the nation of Israel being restored by God himself. They saw rain and fertility and crops and peace and wealth and prosperity and health coming at the end of time when God reigns and restores his ruined world. And that is, back in Acts chapter 1, what Jesus is teaching about here. And this is the all-important and indisputable thing we need to understand. That Jesus' great mission, his purpose, his work, was to bring the kingdom of God to earth. To begin the last days. To make that longed-for future a reality. That this was his purpose is evident even before his birth. Think back to how the gospel accounts begin. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus, he said that this baby would reign over the house of Jacob with a kingdom that will never end. That's Luke 1.33. And in the first day of his public ministry that Luke reports, when everybody is clamoring to Jesus for healing, he says, no, my priority is I must preach the kingdom because that is why I was sent. And so can you see what is going through the minds of the disciples now as they are standing before Jesus? Notice in verse 3 what he emphasizes. Verse 3, his suffering on the cross and his resurrection. Here they are looking at the resurrected king. In his death on the cross, he's brought about forgiveness. He's brought about victory over evil. Here he is, the conquering king, standing before them. And they understand that they are looking at the king of God's kingdom. 
the one who is about to ascend to the right hand of God to take up all power and authority. Not only that, but there are more clues. Verse 4, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem, the promised worldwide center of the kingdom. Verse 5, he says the Spirit is going to come, another promise associated with the kingdom in Isaiah. And you know what they say? If it's big and gray and has floppy ears, it's probably an elephant. And the disciples are standing there thinking, here is the king of God's kingdom, risen, ruling, reigning. The last days have begun. And all of this, therefore, explains the disciples' question in verse 6. So, Luke says, so, given all these clues, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What do you think of their question? The great 16th century reformer John Calvin said of verse 6, there are as many errors in this question as words. Wouldn't you just drop dead if your tutor or your teacher wrote that at the bottom of your essay? Well, I hate to disagree with John Calvin, but I actually think the disciples are spot on in verse 6. It is precisely the question they should have asked, given all the clues that Jesus has given. They understood that the kingdom has come. They've understood that they're in the last days. The risen Christ is standing before them. The prophets are coming true. We've just sung, didn't we, at the beginning. Our God reigns over all the earth. They could have sung that too as they look at Jesus. And so the kingdom of God is essentially simple. It's not an abstract idea. It's not some kind of another way of talking about my relationship with God. Neither is it a way of talking about heaven. It's not just entirely future. Neither is it something that we as human beings can bring about on earth by our social reform. Now, the kingdom of God is the present rule of God's king in which he brings all the blessings of the promised kingdom to reality, the last days have come we're in the kingdom now if you belong to Jesus if you submit to him as king then you are part of the kingdom what else are Jesus parables telling us than that but I said the kingdom's simple but there is one complication there is a hitch and that brings us to the second point the purpose of the last days have a look with me at verses seven to eight Look at the way Jesus answers their question. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' answer to their question. Please look at it very carefully. Notice that he doesn't correct them about their understanding about the coming of the kingdom or the restoration of Israel. They are quite right to ask those things. The last days are here. This is what Jesus has come to do. The end has come. The kingdom of God is here. Of course it's here because Jesus has risen. What else was the cross and resurrection about but fulfilling the hope of the whole Old Testament? But there is one thing they now need to understand. They need to understand the purpose of the last days. And there are three things that Jesus gives them to clarify. But I'm going to use this packet of Pringles to explain it. I know some people are visual learners, and I hope you appreciate this. You see, imagine if you are in the Old Testament, you are... An Old Testament believer, you're listening to uh, the promises of people like Isaiah. You're listening to Malachi chapter 4, promising the last days. What do you see? I don't know if you at the back can read that or at the back of the balcony. Can you read the word end on the bottom of my packet of Pringles? And so as you're listening to the prophets, you're looking to the future. You are seeing just one single event. 
Sometimes it's called the last day or the last days or the hour or simply the end. Uh, Last week in Malachi 4, it was particularly clear, wasn't it? The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day when those who reject God will be brought down and those who follow God will be raised up and released from the stall like calves. Malachi did not say that there'll be two ends, did he? An end and then a return of the Lord. He just said the Lord is coming. And whatever it's called, it is referring to the great moment of transition between this corrupt age and the next. But I wonder if you can see now what the disciples now understood. And you probably can't see that right at the back corner. Chris Heron is nodding, that's encouraging. The end now looks like the cross of Christ. That's what the disciples clearly understood. They have seen the end in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The end of the world has come. Sorry if you missed it. Jesus' death and resurrection is the final act, the culmination of all the promises, the thing that swung the calendar from B.C. to A.D., This is what the apostles preached throughout the book of Acts. Have a listen, for example, to Paul preaching in Acts 13 on the screen. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. Couldn't be clearer, could it? All the promises of the Old Testament, the hopes of the kingdom of God have now been fulfilled. And so as they stand looking at him, hearing him teach about the kingdom of God, they understand that the moment of transition has begun. That God's judgment on his enemies has come in the cross. And the kingdom promises have come in Jesus' resurrection. But here's what they had not yet understood. They had not yet grasped that the last day just began the end and so look at my packet of pringles now as i read verses six and seven again so when they met him together they asked him lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to israel is this the end he said to them it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Can you see the the huge change of expectation now that has happened in verses 7 to 8? They were spot on to ask the question, the end has come, and the answer is an emphatic yes, of course Jesus has brought the restoration of Israel. What else was he doing when he died on the cross and rose again? But now he explains that that ending has been stretched out, as it were. He has given them time. And so the Pringles packet represents the last days, the days between Jesus' first coming and his return. He has given them time. The kingdom is not fully here. doesn't tell them how much time he's given them, but he's given them time. But there's a second thing we need to understand in verse 8. He's given them a task in this time. He's given them time to witness. That is what this day is for. They are to proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth, not only in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the world, in slowly expanding circles, like a pebble dropped in the pond. It'll begin in Jerusalem. It'll move to Judea. It'll even go to Samaria, as we'll see next week. And then the book of Acts follows the progress to the ends of the earth. And so what is the kingdom of God and how does it come? It comes through the preaching of the gospel. As Christ's kingship is proclaimed, his cross, resurrection, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, there is the kingdom of God coming on earth. And that is why he's given us time. And again, doesn't that change the way you think about the world? Doesn't that give us great clarity of life? Why did the sun rise this morning? Why are our hearts still beating? If the end has already come, if God has already brought judgment on this world, he's given us time to proclaim the gospel, 
See, if the kingdom of God comes through a morally transformed culture, then our mission is to gradually transform the culture. Our efforts could be spent on creation care, on political activism, on education, and so on. Our core business will be health and happiness. But if the kingdom of God is Jesus' rule, the rule that began with his resurrection and will be manifested to the universe at his return, then our task is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the forgiveness of sins. To put this another way, our mission is to prepare people for judgment. Let me show you two quick examples from this in the book of Acts. Again, on the screen, just listen to how the apostles themselves do it. Here is Peter's second sermon after, uh, after Pentecost in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 3. Repent then, he says, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. There's the restoration, you see. The disciples ask him, is now the time when you're going to restore Israel? Yes. But through the preaching of the gospel. It's not our task to restore the world to its perfection. That is what Jesus will do when he returns. But as we proclaim Christ, we get a taste of it through the Spirit, the guarantee, the hope of it, as we trust in Jesus. Again, listen to Peter, this time after the conversion of the first Gentile in chapter 10. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and dead. All the prophets testify about him, that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is the mission. Nowhere in the New Testament do you see the apostles trying to transform society to bring about the kingdom of God. They challenge society, they disrupt society by the gospel. And we must not expect the culture to become Christian. We must not work for that end. No, Jesus demonstrated his priority. He said, my priority is to preach the kingdom. Jesus was the most compassionate man who ever lived. Read Mark chapter 5 and see his beautiful compassion over that woman who was bleeding for 12 years, or the little girl who died, or the demon-possessed man. And yet he always resisted the temptation to make that his big aim. He could have emptied every hospital in the world, but he left and said, no, my priority is to preach the gospel, and that must be ours too. The third part of it, though, is that they're going to need help to do it. They're going to need the power. They're actually going to need Jesus to be with them. And so in the last days, he gives them a particular gift. He gives them the gift of the Spirit. And next week, we'll look at this more closely. But the Spirit is there because the witness is hard. Again, there's great confusion about the role of the Spirit. It's probably the biggest confusion in all Christian doctrine. What is the role of the Spirit in the Christian life? Well, here we see that the Spirit is not given to make us feel good. It's not given to help us to make the right decisions in life. But he comes to empower our witness to Jesus. Why do the disciples need the Spirit? Why do they need such power? Why couldn't they just do it off their own bat, in their own strength and intelligence? Well, the reason is the reason we need the Spirit. Because they will always witness in the face of rejection and hostility. They will need the Spirit simply for courage and for boldness. Because the witness is always going to be in the context of hostility and rejection. And so this then is how the Spirit of God is going to come by spirit-filled disciples being his witnesses and suffering for it to the ends of the world. And again, just think about how this changes the way you see the world and life. It gives us great clarity, doesn't it? it? gives us great clarity as what we're about as a church. 
It's what each of our lives is to be about. And I think this is very challenging. It's very easy in our entitled days, in our me-centered universe, to believe that God is here to provide for my needs. That if I'm a Christian, I'm somebody who believes in a universe where God is here, but God is basically here to make my life easy, to provide for me. But doesn't this just flip that on its head and remind us that the world is here for the glory of Christ? The Spirit is given us to send us out in witness. And I have the privilege of waking up each day not to serve myself, but to serve him, to suffer for him, to speak for him, to wait for his return. So we've just commissioned two elders this morning. And it's important to remember that we chose them, recognize them, I should say, not because of their ability to organize a roster or to lead a Bible study, but because they see themselves as witnesses to Jesus. Just listen to this from a book I've been reading about eldership. PJ Smythe, South African chap who writes on this, he says, elders are explosively dangerous men as far as the kingdom of darkness is concerned. They are warrior brothers dedicated to Jesus and his church and champions of gospel advance in their neighborhood and the nations. Now, Michael and Gareth might not look explosively dangerous, but if they're convinced followers of Jesus, that's how they look to Satan and to the world in opposition. And if you're a Christian, that's how you should look too, whether you're a church leader or not. Someone who is so convinced that the kingdom of God has come. Someone who is so committed that Satan looks at you and is terrified. If you're a Christian, that's how it should be. And if you're a parent, that's how you should be teaching your children. To know that the world does not revolve around them but about Jesus and his mission. It's the kindest thing you can do to teach your children that. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you're not convinced, not committed, then you've got a particular moment of opportunity to turn to Jesus as ruler of this world. Listen again to the words of Peter. Repent, he says. Turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out and times of refreshing come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. Well, if you've never done that before, it's important that you do that because there's one more thing we need to see, and that is the shortness of the last days. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. As he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white beside them stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now here is the moment of departure. Luke has already given a couple of hints of it, but now he reports the event itself. And again, there are many details we could think about. Men of Galilee, what what is that about? It's taken us back to the way it began. Why are you standing here looking at the sky? It's a polite way of saying, what are you doing? Get on with your job. But the most important thing Luke wants us to see is that this is not the final act of Jesus. Look again at the the rather strange way they put it at the end of verse 11. I've been really struck by this this week. I've read this and preached on this many times, but really struck by this oddness of this last line. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you've seen him go into heaven. What is all that about? Well, I think it holds a hugely important truth for us. 
get this right and it, it solves all sorts of problems and dilemmas in theology to do with the end of the world. Get this right and actually shapes our entire life. Get it wrong and you can end up in a real mess. You see, when it comes to the future of our world and how it will end, there is much confusion again and controversy. And you'll know that there's a whole sort of branch of Christian writing that obsesses about this, that tries to work out the dates and the times, using the books of Revelation and Daniel to map out events leading towards the end. And so we talk about the Antichrist and the millennium and pre-millennium and post-millennium and all these kind of things. And you might have wondered about that and wondered through the complexity, what is the Bible actually teaching us? Well, here it is. Acts 1 to 11, it's beautifully simple. This is giving us the next event on God's calendar. And Luke is saying there's only one thing you need to know about the future. You don't need to worry about the Antichrist or what's happening in Rome or Israel or the millenniums. Or The only thing you need to know is that the next event is Jesus' return. Because notice it's this Jesus. What a strange way of putting it. What other Jesus would they be thinking of? This Jesus will return the same way. Why do the angels say that? They say it because the return of Jesus is based on the work he has already done. See, he's already risen as king, and so he is going to return as king. He's already defeated the powers of darkness on the cross. So when he returns, that's simply what we will see. The big work of establishing his kingdom has been done. All we need is to see it revealed. Jesus is now reigning and ruling. The kingdom of God has come. The only thing that therefore matters in this world is that that kingship is declared by the preaching of the gospel. The end of the world is not going to feature some great battle between good and evil. That battle happened on the cross. And our task now is to declare it until he comes again. Let me give you an image just to keep in mind. If I can say this reverently, Jesus here is like a tennis ball that has been sent rocketing to the sky. But you know what happens when you send a tennis ball rocketing to the sky? Moments later, it comes down again. Gravity inevitably brings it back. And that is the trajectory of Jesus' career. This Jesus, who you have seen taken from you into heaven, will return. There is no question that he will return. The trajectory is set. He is coming now. That is the next thing that can happen. And you know what that means? It means the time to witness by the Spirit is very short. It's been decided by God, not revealed to us, but it's shorter than we can imagine. The next event is the day of judgment, in which case now is the day to get right with God. Now is the day not to fix the world with sticking plasters, to try and reform it, to try and make the culture Christian. That's Jesus' work on the last day. Now is the time to preach the gospel, to declare Christ's kingship to the ends of the earth and to the ends of days. And so let me conclude then by going back to that question about the emu and the kangaroo. Can the work of Christ go backwards? Is it going backwards in our time? Oh, we can perhaps discuss that over coffee and throughout the week. It sometimes feels like it, doesn't it? Because sometimes the culture tracks more closely with the worldview of the Bible. I think that's what's been happening in the UK for the past several hundred years. Discipleship and evangelism is a little bit more straightforward. Other times the culture moves away from the worldview of the Bible. And it seems darker. And sharing the gospel just seems harder and Christian voices are silenced. 
But the mission of Christ still moves forward. Of course it does. Because Christ has risen and rules his world. The Spirit has been poured out. This is not a time to be an Eeyore about being a Christian. This is a great time to be a Christian. It's a great time to be a Christian because we're in the last days. We've been given a mission. We've been given the Spirit. Is the cause of Christ going backwards? Of course not. How can the king of the universe go backwards? How can his kingdom be under threat? Next week we'll see this in more detail, that the kingdom is in conflict. The rulers of the world war against God as we read in Psalm 2. But God in heaven laughs at their pride. We'll see that the world is in birth pains, like a woman in labor, wars and rumors of wars and persecution of God's people. Of course it feels hard. No one said it would be easy. But backwards, never. And so the only question is, will you join him and make his mission the work of your life? Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite the appearance that the cause of Christ is failing, we see in this chapter that the reverse is the case. That the work of Jesus continues through the costly, spirit-empowered witness of his disciples as they proclaim the momentous news of the kingship of Jesus to all nations until he returns to restore all things at the end. And so we ask that we might not be deceived by the slowness and the hardness of the mission, that we won't be silenced by resistance to the message, but that we might understand ourselves as witnesses of Jesus and that we would expect both hostility and fruit as we hold out the gospel of the kingdom in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.